how's that for a send-off? Welcome to podcast number 11, the long-awaited, I'm sure you're holding your whatever you hold when you are waiting for something, and uh, this one is on movie scores by request and by my impetus to demonstrate my love of movie scores and a word of advice if all you want to do is listen to movie scores uh, I advise you to go to podcast number 12 because that'll be kind of a, a rundown a list of all kinds of movie scores from all kinds of people most of whom you probably don't know uh, this first one will be an introduction an overview of movie scores and some thoughts about it so if you just want to hear music which is probably what most people listen to these podcasts for anyway uh, jump ahead to podcast number 12 which by the way isn't done yet <laughs> but when it is that's where the, that's where most of the music will be when you turn on a movie the movie starts and uh, the studio name comes on there are unsung composer heroes behind all those introductory studio themes and what I'm going to do now is play a bunch of them and for fun see how many studios you can identify like TriStar or Lionsgate or MGM or 20th Century Fox so just listen to these and see what you can see what you can pick out
And that brings us back to the very start of the show. And guess who wrote that? Alfred Newman, one of the biggies. And we'll talk about him and also Jerry Goldsmith uh, is in there. Which one sounds the most dynamic and the most in-your-face besides the 20th Century Fox theme? Probably number one, which is the universal theme, and that is Goldsmith. The others uh, are all great, I think. I like them. I always like to listen to them at the beginning of the movie, and I kind of like, see, I, I guess, actually, when the music comes on before the studio name comes on, I say, who is that? And I, uh, and I guess most of them, because that's one of the things they do when I watch a movie. It's kind of, kind of a little game, just like this is. Okay, the list is uh, of nine intros, and if you wrote them down, this is the order in which they were played. Number one was the, as I just said, the Jerry Goldsmith theme for Universal Studios. Number two was DreamWorks, the one little kid in the fishing pole trying to catch God knows what, and the little blue thing at the beginning. It's beautiful, by the way. Uh, number three was Paramount. Number four was TriStar. That's one of the horse galloping up to the front of the screen. Uh, number five was Lionsgate. I love their. Uh, that's my my favorite my favorite uh, video graphic. They do this. Uh, they used to do anyway. This, this set of really neat gears intertwining. Okay, the next one was uh, the newer Lionsgate. They redid it to celebrate. I don't know, making money or something. Uh, then of course the. Gosh, you get that one. MGM, the MGM line. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Uh, number eight was Warner Brothers, and number nine was the 20th Century Fox theme again. Uh, as it was played in the uh, beginning of the program. You might have wondered, watching uh, MGM movies uh, at the start, they've obviously changed lions since the 20s because the lions uh, don't live forever. It's like dragons. And so they, I think they've had like seven lions. And I'm going to read a little bit uh, from uh, a site about the history of MGM lions, which I found kind of interesting. The history of the MGM lion. The classic lion trademark was created in 1916 for the Goldwyn Pictures Corporation by ad executive Howard Dietz. MGM lions slats appearing from 1917 to 1924, was born in the Dublin Zoo. Deed said he decided to use a lion as the company's mascot as a tribute to his alma mater, Columbia University, whose athletic team was named the Lions. In 1924, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer was founded when American business magnate Marcus Lowe gained control of Metro Pictures, Goldwyn Pictures Corporation, and Louis B. Mayer Pictures. The first line called Slats was used for the original Goldwyn Pictures design and for the first MGM version. He didn't actually roar, referring to the people watch. I don't know whether he's watching people or people are watching him, but that's what it says. The lion gave an audible roar on July 31, 1928 for the debut of the movie White Shadows in the South Seas. The roar was heard via a gramophone record because the movie was silent. Uh, they didn't have the paraphernalia yet, like a Vitaphone, to uh, add sound to movies in that particular year at that time. MGM Lion Jackie, 1928-1956, was the second lion to be used in the logo. Jackie's roar was recorded for use at the beginning of MGM Talking Movies. 
And at the time, they built a sound stage around the cage, smart move, to make the recording. Leo was the seventh lion and is MGM's longest live, having appeared in, in most MGM films since 1957. He was also the youngest of all the lions at the time MGM filmed his roar, hence his smaller mane for the younger lion. So, the history of the MGM lion. Oh, I have to throw in a caveat. The fan is on. I'm in central Florida, and the humidity and heat are just about unbearable, or at least uncomfortable without them. So I'm going to try to get rid of the, uh, using noise reduction, some of the hum in the background, but you might still hear some. So anyway, that's what's going on. Before I get into the main part of the show, um, I put together nine sections of nine different soundtracks in kind of a montage and blended them into one another uh, to show how bland and generic most movie music is. So listen to this and I guess if you want to play a guessing game, see if you can find where I, uh, I cut from one to the other. But the idea of the whole thing is to show that <laughs> it all sounds the same. It's just, it's nothing. And really good film music is is hard to find. You could call this a soundtrack for the film Music from the Land of Bland.
a friend of mine listened to this seven minute or eight minute section and said, well, yeah, it, it sounds the same except for the chorus. And I pointed out there's actually, that's actually using two choruses from two different films. And I mean, it's, it's, they sound so similar, you can't even, she couldn't tell that there's actually two films there with a separate chorus from each film. I used to be in love with, with movie music. I was in love with movies when I was a you know, teenager. And well, since then, I've, I've really, I've listened to a lot of classical music and of course a lot of jazz. And I've come to appreciate variety and quality. Both of these are sadly lacking in just about everything you hear. I'm gonna play some stuff in a minute that I think is a little different and I like, of course. This is all about my favorites, right? Because I can't cover everything, so you can hear my favorites. So let's get into the main part of the show, which was born in lunacy and created out of my hubris, because this topic is so wide that it's like doing a show about, I think I'll do a show about food or colors. I mean, it's really wide open. By the way, I use the term movies as opposed to film, because film is kind of like, hoity-toity, upscale diction. They're just movies, okay? Just like Paul N. Kiel said, and I lost it at the movies, the 1966 book, which kind of changed my view of movies. And uh, so they're just movies, and this is just music. Some of it's great, some of it's just filler, and some of it's designed to sell, sell a soundtrack, like Top Gun. I've decided to do two sections. The first one is going to be some very loose categories uh, I call functions, functions of music. And then the main part will be at least the beginning of the chronology of movies from, believe it or not, like 19, the, the teens of 1910 to 1920, which had music, it just wasn't in the film. It was played with the film. Then I'll move on to uh, a kind of a, again, very loose chronology of music and film. By functions, I mean the use of music in movies. The first function that I'm going to cover is what you might call action music. If you're familiar with Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, it's, the, <laughs> it's the music behind most of the crap you see on Prime Video. Uh, the guy comes back, his daughter's been kidnapped, taking revenge on people who screwed him over in Afghanistan. You know, like they, and there's always in, in in one of these movies, there's always like a guy standing, usually bare-chested, with a uh, an ammunition belt around his shoulder, holding a weapon that looks like, well, it looks like something out of Star Wars, and he's gonna shoot those suckers, and when he shoots those suckers, man, you're gonna get some action music.
Wow, how about that? Action. <laughs> That's from uh, Spider-Man Homecoming by a, a composer I don't know, but I should from now on. Michael Giacchino. You'll notice something similar between the selections I'm playing for the action section here, the action function. Very, very rhythmic and heavy on the percussion. Even the strings act uh, percussively. And pretty soon you'll hear some uh, horns, the horn section, because it's loud and uh, also, and by nature, kind of has a, a military flavor. A lot of drums in there, huh? That's Rambo Last Blood by uh, Brian Tyler. And I'm thinking uh, Last Blood. Are you sure, Mr. Stallone? Anyway, that's uh, very percussive stuff there. And um, I guess it's, it's pretty exciting music, but it's not something that you want to listen to as music necessarily. But it certainly does the job as background for the action in the movie. Now I'm going to play something that can be listened to, at least I think so, as music, separate from the movie. And it's by a female composer named Lisa Gerard. It's the battle scene in the beginning from uh, the movie Gladiator. And I'm going to play this whole cut because it's really very cool. And the track is about 10 minutes long.
I'm going to make a biased comment and say that's the best battle sequence music ever written. It's got all kinds of things in it. There's some some parts of two themes going on at the same time. It develops. It has a main theme. It's got everything that basically a piece of classical music, classical in the sense of development. I think it's wonderful. One more selection from the action uh, examples. This is uh, really different. I'm not playing it because it's necessarily good, but it needs to be represented because it's done entirely on a synthesizer. And it's from uh, the Terminator. And the synthesizer, I believe, was chosen because, after all, we're dealing with a machine, and the synthesizer makes machine-like sounds, usually. And this was composed, or I think they say realized, by Brad Fidel. I think that's how you say it. It's F-I-E-D-E-L. Talk about an industrial sound, huh? Of course, that's the whole point. So now for something completely different, and you're ready for that, I'm sure, after what we just heard. Let's listen to another function of music to enhance the romantic aspect, either to enhance the relationship of characters in the movie or the mood of the movie itself. I'll just give a couple examples, one from um, The Egyptian from 1954, the music by Alfred Newman, and the other from the pathetically syrupy Love Story from 1970.
Okay, that that's all I can stand. I mean, like, past the insulin. <laughs> uh, Francis Lay, L-A, his name is spelled L-A-I, French composer. He's done dozens of movie scores, and I've heard a couple of them, and they're they're pretty good. And then he went with Hollywood and, and produced this Court of Molasses. In his defense, he was writing music, a theme, a love theme for Ellie McGraw and Ryan O'Neill. So you know, let's uh, let's cleanse our palates with some music by Alfred Newman. This is from the 1954 movie The Egyptian. This track is called "Her Name Was Marit." that is nice it's not love story it's just beautiful purely beautiful music love story of course has lyrics and everybody went around singing and humming them this is just something to listen to as, as gorgeous music this is a strange um, uh, music soundtrack because it actually used two major composers Alfred Newman, whom you just heard, and Bernard Herrmann, who I'll talk about later in depth. And uh, Alfred Newman wrote the, the kind of the, the pretty uh, lilting stuff, and Bernard Herrmann wrote the, the heavy uh, chariot-charging war-like stuff. Digression again. I'm sorry, I just have to give some background for this, for this fantastic score. I wondered how this score ended up with two major giant composers and I came across this. The collaboration for the film came about after Newman realized the time pressures on him were too great to enable him to write the score all by himself. Daryl Zanuck, uh, chief studio uh, head at uh, Fox, wanted Franz Waxman to assist Newman but his chief held out for Bernard Herrmann. It's unlikely that Herrmann would have said yes to working with anyone else, but his respect and admiration for Newman is legendary. The two composers generally have vastly different styles, so it is something of a miracle that the score is as, is as coherent as it is. Most of the early action music is by Herrmann, with Newman unsurprisingly concentrating on the mystical and theological aspects of the story toward the end. Herman's love theme for the Egyptian, Nefer, 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 
must rank as one of the most beautiful cues he ever wrote. It's seven minutes long and allowed the composer more room than usual to develop his material, a chance rarely given to composers nowadays. The high register oboe melody, later taken up by the strings, offers far more insight into the story than Michael Curtis's long-forgotten movie did. Yeah, who's heard of the Egyptian now? Herman's livelier material is just as good. The chariot race, the pursuit, are two highlights, both offering up the kind of orchestral violence for which the composer was so renowned. Its harsh brutality is unlike anything composers write for film these days, and Herman writing in such a style is always a real treat. And I'm going to add to this, uh, yeah, we'll hear from uh, him in North by Northwest, the opening uh, incredibly powerful theme. So, moving along here. The music by Newman is just as strong, and some of the cues credited to Herman are actually based around sketches by Newman. Movies with strong religious connotations are those for which Newman is probably best remembered today. The Robe, The Song of Bernadette, The Greatest Story Ever Told, etc. His cue, Hymn to Aton, or I think it's Aton, continues this tradition. This dates before Christ, but the music is unmistakably Newman. When the material is reprised for death and exile, the effect is breathtaking. The Egyptian represents two composers at the peak of their powers and is surely an essential purchase for all fans of the genre. The sheer quality of the music speaks for itself. And I'll add here that uh, for someone who collects soundtracks or has quite a few of them and wants some more, this should be the very next purchase. So let's hear some Bernard Herrmann and we're going to talk about him in depth later as I said but since we're talking about the Egyptian, first, this is the Nefer, Nefer, Nefer theme mentioned in the article.
that's one of the most tender themes Bernard Herrmann ever wrote. Um, Taxi Driver was really cool. This is uh, pure soul. Now let's hear some of the more raucous music Herrmann installs in the Egyptian. Okay, those sections by Bernard Herrmann were the introduction to the movie, Chariot Ride, Pursuit, and Dance Macabre. And now back to Newman. Uh, this is the death of Akhenaten.
as the article mentioned, uh, Newman was big into not religious themes, but he was chosen to do religious-themed movies. This Akhenaten was the uh, Egyptian pharaoh who believed in one god, and that didn't go over too well. I don't know if he was assassinated, but he was uh, replaced by someone who didn't believe that way, at least in the movie. His replacement was Yul Brynner. <laughs> he was actually replaced by Tutankhamun. But in the movie, he dies, and that's the end of monotheism in Egypt, and it was left up to the Jews to, um, to establish that. And as I look at the clock on the computer here, we're at uh, 50 minutes, and I see another three-part, three-podcast series coming up, since we haven't even gotten through what I call the functions. The chronology is not even on the horizon. <laughs> so I'll finish the uh, what I call the romantic function, and that'll be it for this show. I certainly digressed there with uh, Newman and Herman, but that's such a great score. So, back to romantic themes, and this is one that uh, is not specifically between two lovers. In fact, it's called The Living Sculptures of Pemberley from the 2005 movie Pride and Prejudice. This doesn't exemplify the love between two people, man and a woman, so much as it acts as a background for the tone of the whole movie. The composer is Dario Marianelli, uh, who's done a slew of films. And uh, I'm going to play the whole thing. It's only three minutes long. It's really beautiful.
the whole score is pretty much like that. So just beautiful themes. Marianelli is quite a uh, a prodigy. He's written zillions of uh, movie scores, and he's only 63 years old right now. And these are some of the films he's done. These are the ones I'm familiar with. Uh, the Darkest Hour from 2017, Everest 2015, the 2012 Anna Karenina, the 2011 Jane Eyre, Eat, Pray, and Love 2010, The Soloist 2009, Agora 2009, Atonement 2007, V is for Vendetta 2006, and this one, uh, Pride and Prejudice from 2005. I mean, he didn't graduate from uh, school, television, film and television school, until 1997, which means he's done these things in the last 23 years, which is astounding. So I hope you enjoyed that. I'm going to finish up this uh, section with what I consider, <laughs> this is a biggie, this to me is the most beautiful music ever written. I can barely... I can barely listen to it all the way through because it's so intense and I don't want to make it old in my head so it sounds familiar. It's written by a, a Polish composer named Wojciech Kilar, K-I-L-A-R. And there's another Polish composer I've kind of recently discovered named, I'll try to pronounce his name, Abel Korzaniowski. I had to practice that one, so, you know. Um, who wrote um, the music for the film We, W period, E period, about uh, Wallace and Edward, the king who gave up his crown for his love of a woman. So I'm kind of keeping an eye on uh, Polish composers. This piece of music is called Love Remembered, and it's from Bram Stoker's Dracula, which came out in 1992. And a lot of it is uh, very uh, boisterous and loud and dynamic. This is a very subtle theme. In fact, in the movie, so subtle, when I saw the movie after I was familiar with the theme, I could barely hear it. <laughs> and it's just this incredibly gorgeous piece of music. And with the playing of it, I'll end the romantic function section of movies as well as the podcast and uh, once again if you want to get in touch with me or tell me off or tell me good things my email address is gcarter1 the numeral one mwc at gmail.com and suggestions are readily welcome uh, I know I skip a lot of stuff maybe I don't cover things you wanted me to cover so let me know and I'll talk to you in the next podcast